us back home. This, this, is, this is something that I think is very valid for us today to look at, especially in the, in the series that we've been going through. Because, of course, we've been going through uh, Psalm 23 kind of in length, kind of back and forth, showing different passages of scriptures that align well with Psalm 23 and the, the message that David is portraying from that psalm. And it's just been wonderful. Danielle and I spent a lot of last night talking again about Psalm 23 and the importance of it and how it just really, um, when you meditate on it, it can transform a lot of the ways that you understand and perceive things and just the way that you approach different situations too. And so First Chronicles 17, it says this. This happens after uh, David finally got the Ark of the Covenant back into the nation. Um, he was able to, to take rulership and authority over the, over the kingdom. And so uh, chapter 17, he says this. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for, the, for God is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan. This is interesting. So Nathan told him, told David that the Lord was with him in whatever it is he wanted to do. Didn't say that David explained what was on his heart. Didn't say that he went into detail or length about kind of his idea of what was happening afterwards. Nathan just said, hey, the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan. Saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Whether I have moved with all the Israelites, or sorry, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I say, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of his entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, 
My God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem the people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised so that uh, so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then people will say the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel is Israel's God and the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. You, Lord, are God. You have promised those good things to your servant. Now you have been blessed. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. Great chapter. Great chapter. Very, I I find it interesting. There's many things that come to my mind and different questions that kind of start to flow through my mind as I, as I started to read this chapter again. Uh, One of the first was just so interesting that David and seeing the establishment of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle once again, in the, in the, in the tent that he set for God in the presence of, of, uh, of the nation. They had a couple different locations where they would worship, and they would honor the Lord, and they would extend praises. And you see in the previous chapter that he employed specific individuals to do specific tasks in the midst of the assembly of, of God's people, in the midst of the nation. Um, there were some that he employed for Thanksgiving and to just give God praise and honor and to give thankfulness in the midst of his presence uh, for the entirety of the time that it was there. He had others that were set to, to play music and to sing and others that were priests and Levites that were supposed to be in the, in the area as well to serve. So there were many people that were established by the king's kingdom to serve the presence of God. And then so now in this chapter, as David was settled in his palace, he told the Nathan prophet that as he sat in his house, established and worthy of being called king, he thought it interesting that he's living in a house of cedar while the Ark of the Covenant is under a tent. Nathan's reply is interesting. He's like, hey, the Lord has been with you from the times beforehand and the times when you were served. I mean, I can only imagine the things that's rolling in the back of Nathan's mind at that time. He's like, man, when, when Saul was, was wicked and evil and you were playing in his, in his sight, the Lord spared your life by not allowing you to die. When you were in the shepherd's field and you were caring and tending for the sheep, you were not taken by the wolf or the bear or the lion or anything that could come against the sheep. Actually, you'd, you conquered them, kept the sheep safe. When the giant came against the nation and, and, and mocked God, you were the one who stood in place saying that I will not stand for someone mocking the Lord. And the giant fell. You were the one who, who in, the, in the multitude of battles that you went, to, uh, went and were a part of in leading armies, you, 
saw many different people, many different kingdoms fall as they tried to take what was Israel's. Even when Saul chased after you and sought after your life, you found refuge in the same nations that you conquered in battle. And the Lord gave you favor in the midst of those people. You even had many people gather around you in these times of hardship and trials and things like that. It's incredible to see that you're still alive in the midst of all those things. And then when Saul died, those who tried to still take the throne and, and stay and lead in the position that you were supposed to lead in, you still relied on the Lord to give you the position that he promised and anointed you for. So Nathan's comment was not in jest. It was an understood and lived and experienced process of saying, whatever you have in mind, do it for God is with you. <laughs> you took the ark of God and brought it back into the, into the capital city. It's a beautiful thing you were able to do. God is with you. Do it. God is with you. Then verse 3 sings a little bit of a different tune, though has a very important word at the beginning of that. It's a three-letter word, but. But David's desire and thought process was not quite what the Lord had in mind. It was a good idea. It's honorable that David would want a place for the Lord to dwell, a place of cedar, a place that was established, not just a tent. But David didn't consult the Lord in, in this questioning, in this thought process. But it happened on that night that the word of God came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David that you will not build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is so interesting to me. When we think of established kingdoms, we think of a specific facility, a location, a place that you can go to that as you come into the kingdom, you notice when you anytime you think of a kingdom, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Someone just shouted out castle. a castle, right? A dwelling place of the king who represents the kingdom. Great answer. Philip. That's what I was looking for. Great student. A castle, a place of dwelling for the one who's called the king. You look for that in any Disney story that you've ever seen ever. When they've introduced the kingdom, there is soon to follow some kind of castle. Some kind of medieval time period. Uh, you have some knights that are guarding, some different guards who are in place, the, the, the established stone, the, the massive facility that as you come into the place, your eyes are made big. You go, oh my gosh, this is huge. This is a very large place. This also lets me know the, the gravity of authority that this individual probably has if they're dwelling in this place and this is the location that they live. So it's wild to look and see that this is what is there. But God told Nathan, I've never, not a one time, asked any of my people 
to build me a place that is completely fixed. I have gone from one place to another, dwelt around with my people. Verse 7, he says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make, sh- make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. I'm telling you, if we meditate on scripture, it is incredible what you end up finding. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and over my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. What a word. What a word. Now, I I believe that there's a twofold meaning to this here. Twofold. First one is, of course, we know because we know history. And if you know the Bible much, then you know that the, the son that will succeed David and the one who will actually build the temple, his name was Solomon. And Solomon... End up taking the blueprints that were given to David from the Lord on how to construct the temple that will be an established place of occupation for the the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in and the presence of God to be. They have a powerful in uh, like ribbon cutting, if you will, uh, in that process, too, where it shows that that people just could not even enter and up into the steps to get up into the temple because the presence of God had overwhelmed them in those moments. An incredible sight to see. Solomon's name has been established. Many of us know Solomon, and, and uh, you've heard of the wisdom of Solomon. Even secularism has adopted and adapted many of these things in their own mythologies and things like that about a man named Solomon, a biblical uh, character who had many, many riches. He also made many, many mistakes by having gajillions of wives and concubines and all these other people and ended up into idolatry heavily. God's love was not removed, but his favor sooner or later removed from that place. Even though God gave, saw, gave David the blueprint for the temple, the temple soon fell. If you know much about Israel's history, you know that that, that temple was erected and they had years and years of, of this being in place, and they were able to come, and they were able to worship and serve the Lord and all these things, but as idolatry perpetuated through the nation of Israel, so did their worship 
diminish in the way that they were able to truly glorify God. And because of that, Babylon was able to come in and destroy the temple, ransack everything that was there, and poof, there goes the beautifully constructed temple that we had read about. You cannot go and, and visit it today because it was destroyed. You see many prophetic books in the Old Testament where they, they talked about the reconstruction of this temple. They went through many a painful processes to make sure that, that that was able to happen. Finally, a man named Zerubbabel was able to get to a place where he was able to construct a kind of passable temple, one may say. It worked. It was, a, it was a good place that they were able to go back to. It was not the prettiest looking of all the temples that were built, but it served its purpose in being able to have the, the people come into worship in a centralized location again. Praise the Lord. But then you find that a man named Herod comes around in the times where, where Jesus was getting ready to be born, and he added on that temple. And he really did some, some doozy of a work trying to outdo what Solomon did and, and making his own name famous. Trying to appease the Israelites and get them on his side because he really wanted them to enjoy his authority as he ruled and served over the nation of Israel in those times. Some even say that, that it was more grand than Solomon's old, own temple. That it, as you came into the city, the reflection of the gold off there would nearly blind you at times because it was, it was full of different kinds of, of gold artifacts. Covered and cased in gold. He even added on to the temple itself, creating different opportunities for commerce and for people to be uh, in places where they would participate in inappropriate activities during worship. That just means that they were emphasizing finances more than they were emphasizing worship. So they didn't have like temple prostitution or anything like that during those times uh, in that temple. Although that was a, a common practice in, uh, in different pagan religions. However, it was the overemphasization of monetary possessions that caused Jesus to even go in and flip tables twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and then another one after, they, after he rode in to Jerusalem on the, on the back of a donkey and they shouted Hosanna and laid down palm branches. He walked straight from that beautiful scene into the temple and flipped tables and called them a, uh, a place of thieves and robbers, a den. So where is this established, beautiful location that God was speaking of that he was telling David? We see that Nathan's proclamation of hearing what the Lord said and telling David came to pass, but it only lasted briefly with Solomon. The place of dwelling ended up being a place of perversion, inappropriate worship. Solomon's name may have been established, but goodness gracious, they lost way more than they gained in those days as they went back into slavery under the Babylonians. Many people taken into captivity, forced to serve Babylon. Horrible time in Israel's history. So I would say that the first interpretation of this, although is true, is not as powerful in its meaning. However, the second one contains and carries much more hope than the first. 
You see, he says in verse 10, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. The Lord will build a house for you. The Lord will build a house for you. The Lord, he will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and over my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. I propose... That although this applies to Solomon, that this is also a greater revelation of who Jesus is going to be. I propose that the, the place that Christ actually builds for us is a place that lasts much, 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 much longer than anything else a man could ever put his hands to to build. Jesus even mentioned whenever he was standing at the temple, he said, you could tear this temple down, tear this place down, in three days, rise it up again. Now that really made a lot of religious leaders mad because they remembered the history of their people. They remembered the terror of the stories that happened from the time of the Babylon, uh, when Babylonians came through and ransacked and destroyed the temple that was constructed by Solomon. You look through in, in, in the Old Testament books and you find that there's beautiful imagery of showing exactly detailed what all materials they used, how big they were, what their purpose was, was going to be placed for. Who was supposed to be helping with the build? Who was going to be instructed with these, these opportunities to construct these things? What, what was supposed to happen in these places? It was amazing. You, we have the blueprint sitting right in Scripture. It's amazing. So they remembered all those things because they were supposed to study those. These religious leaders knew Scripture. My goodness. They knew it. So they knew what it was going to take. They were like, oh my gosh, even with Solomon's riches... It took them not just three days. That's crazy. It took them quite a bit of time to construct the entirety of this temple. And then it was destroyed. And then the amount of litigation and, and persecution and, and strife that happened for Zerubbabel to even put up a temple. And then now we have this crazy guy, Herod, who came in and, and was ta we were taxed crazily just to get this temple to the place where it's at now. And you're saying in three days, dude, three days, you're going to make this thing where it needs to be again, but they missed it. They missed it. They missed what he was saying. He was not talking about the temple in the sense of brick and mortar. He wasn't talking about the temple with the, with the crazy sticks and the gold and all the, the precious jewels. The place that he was talking about was his own body. The construction that happened was the dwelling place. The tabernacle means the dwelling place. The tent is a place of dwelling. The temple was, was just a glorified place of dwelling for the presence of God. 
when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Interestingly, when you see Jesus's life as he goes through, there's a specific instance that I recall where Jesus was walking through and there was a blind man who shouted out, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. So although Solomon was, in fact, a son of David, his rulership was cut to a place of remembrance, just merely remembrance. His deed of getting the temple established was taken away all in a moment's notice. That was not an everlasting temple. But Jesus giving the description that his body was a temple, his body was a place of dwelling, transforms the way that we now see what it means to be a dwelling place for the Lord. What God's purpose really was for his people was to dwell with his people, was for his people to be able to, to gather together, to glorify him, and to be with him. Jesus was the one who was established and showed us that this is the way that we should be approaching being a dwelling place for God. He said, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is, this is beautiful in the way that we should be treating our relationship with the good shepherd. This relationship that Jesus displayed was something that was very different from the way that they were used to experiencing life in the temple. There was a specific type of hierarchy that they would have to go through protocols, procedures, in order to get to a place of, of forgiveness and atonement. There were many things they had to remember and go through and had to, had to travel to a specific location where the temple was at so that they can uh, go through the, pro the proper census and, and, uh, and sacrifices and remembering the, the specific meals of the seasons. There's many different things that had to traverse in order for them to continue on with these traditions, however. There was a bit of a disconnect at times. You see, we could get caught up in the hustle and bustle of this is what we need to do in order to see God's presence manifest. These are things we need to, to, to at times you feel like you maybe have to conjure up feelings in order to get to a place of, of feeling his presence or understanding his voice. Or, you know, you start hitting these checklists of hierarchies so you can get to a place of finally, am I in his presence? But the beautiful thing is that when the, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tent of meeting, it was there. It wasn't there for a little while, then it went away, then came back, and was there for a little while longer just because they gathered on a Sunday, and that was it. And then it kind of went away for a while. They kind of put it back in storage until it was time to take it back out for people to hang out. They didn't just, like, turn on the Ark so the presence atmosphere could be perpetuated and, and swirly or anything like that. 
His presence was in the tent. Jesus gave us great models of what it meant to be very intentional about meeting with his father. The good shepherd was, has shown us the way of how to have intimacy with God outside of a church gathering. He spent time alone, away from his disciples in many moments to have some solitude and some quiet and, and just talk with his father. We even see a struggle that Jesus had. You say, what? He did what? We see a struggle at the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew that he was about to make the greatest sacrifice that one could ever make in the history of all of eternity, still struggle with the idea that he was going to have to go to the cross. He showed us that we could struggle, even in those moments, sweating drops of blood, stressed. Jesus was stressed. But he was still yet obedient. He was still obedient at the dwelling place of God, showing us that even in moments of stress, anxiety, potential worry, if you allow your thoughts to run rampant to the point of paralyzing you, he showed us what it looked like to be obedient to the Lord. It was not so that he could rebuild a location so that people could come to and then worship him. It was so people could have an established relationship with the almighty God. Not just as some transcendent sky dad up there that we're just hanging out and hoping that he hears me. But one that we can have an intimate relationship with as his dwelling place. I will never take my love away from him as I took away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His, when, when Nathan was saying this, David's predecessor was Saul. If you remember when Saul was disobedient, the Lord then sent a spirit to Saul and it tormented him. That will mess with some of y'all's theology. The Lord sent a spirit to Saul and that spirit tormented him. God said, I will not Remove my love from this person, from my son, as I did my, your predecessor. You see, as Jesus went to the cross, took on his shoulders the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of shame, the weight of condemnation, and God did not remove his love from Jesus in those moments. It grieved the Lord but he did not remove his love. The weightiness of sin, the grotesque nature of the sinful nature. It's, it wasn't just like one sin of, a, of one person. This is the sin of humanity. Every kind of vile and crass thing that you could think of weighed upon his shoulders as he took that to the cross. 
anything that would make you extremely uncomfortable to think about someone being able to do to another person took that weight on his shoulders and he wore it on the cross. The most simplistic and the most grievous thing that you could ever think of. He bore those things on the cross and God did not turn his love away from him. And because of that, as he is the way, as the good shepherd, he said, I am the gate. No one comes to the father except through me. As he is the gate, then that means that as we walk through with the good shepherd, as does God's love remain on you. You are the dwelling place of the most high doesn't matter what kind of facility we have here. doesn't matter what kind of things that we could conjure up or place together. If we lose sight of the fact that we gather because of the nature of God's love for one another and for us, then we've lost sight of what our true intention is as believers. If we walk out of these four doors and it's the last time that we utter the name of Jesus or think or contemplate of his goodness and his mercy throughout the week, then we've missed the mark. Even though we may not have harmed somebody throughout the week, we've still sinned because we have not acknowledged and given thanks to the Most High. True relationship is what he asks and requires of us. True intimacy. And that's where we can look at that passage in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He is my shepherd. The same man who wanted to build a, a place, a massive place for God. God's like, I'm not concerned with places if it is not you. Places should serve as a fun addition to the things that we do, but it cannot be the central reason why we do things because then we make it about the place. Cannot make it about the place have to make it about the people. We want to serve people. We got to love people. We got to be around people. We got to care for people. All the weird people, all the non-weird people, chances are if you think that you're not weird, then you're probably weird. We're all pretty weird in this life. (laughs) We have a lot of weird things that we do. So it should not matter the type of person it is still someone who God loved dearly and deeply enough to send his son who he will not forget one who establishes his dwelling place in his kingdom forever it doesn't wax it doesn't wane it doesn't remove itself he's there are we tentative in the midst of that I want to end by, uh, by reading a story by a, a buddy of mine who went to Rwanda with me. His name is uh, Sidney O'Pry. He's a pastor down in Houston. He, uh, he shared this on Facebook, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. So I'm going to read for just a, a brief moment, and then we'll close. He said this. He said, there was a certain professor of religion named Dr. Christensen who taught at a small college in the western United States. Dr. Christensen 
taught the required survey course in Christianity at this particular institution. Every student was required to take this course his or her freshman year, regardless of his or her major. Although Dr. Christensen tried hard to communicate the essence of the gospel in his class, he found that most of his students looked upon the course as nothing but required drudgery. Despite his best efforts, most students refused to take Christianity seriously. This year, Dr. Christensen had a special student named Steve. Steve was only a freshman, but was studying with the intent of going on to seminary for the ministry. Steve was popular. He was well-liked. He was an imposing physical specimen. He was now the starting center on the school football team as he was the best, and he was the best student in the professor's class. One day, Dr. Christensen asked Steve to stay after class so he could talk with him. How many push-ups can you do? Steve said, I do about 200 every night. 200? That's pretty good, Steve. Dr. Christensen said, do you think you could do 300? Steve replied, I don't know. I've never done 300 at a time. Do you think you could? Asked again. Well, I can try, said Steve. Can you do 300 in sets of 10? Because I have a class project in mind, and I need you to do about 300 push-ups in sets of 10 for this to work. Can you do it? I need you to tell me you can do it, said the professor. Steve said, well, I think I can. Yeah, I can do it. I can do it. So Dr. Christensen said, good. I need you to do this on Friday, and let me explain what I have in mind. So Friday came. Steve got to class early and sat in the front of the room. When class started, the professor pulled out a big box of donuts. Everybody said amen. These weren't the normal kinds of donuts either. These were the extra fancy big kind with the cream centers and the frosting swirls. Everyone was pretty excited about it. It was Friday, the last day of class, and they were going to get an early start on the weekend with a party in Dr. Christensen's class. So Dr. Christensen went to the first girl in the first row and asked, Cynthia, do you want to have one of these donuts? Cynthia said, yes. So Dr. Christensen then turned to Steve and asked, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Cynthia could have a donut? Sure. Steve jumped up, got down from his desk, and did a quick 10. Then Steve, again, sat in his desk. Dr. Christensen put a donut on Cynthia's desk. Here you go. He then went to Joe, the next person, and asked, Joe, do you want a donut? Joe said, yes. Dr. Christensen asked, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Joe can have a donut? So Steve did 10 push-ups, and Joe got a donut. And so it went. Down the first aisle, Steve did 10 push-ups for every person before they got their donut. Down the second aisle, until Dr. Christensen came to Scott. Scott was on the basketball team, and he was in pretty good condition as Steve. He was very popular and never lacked for female companionship. When the professor asked, Scott, do you want a donut? Scott's reply was, well, I can do my own push-ups, right? Dr. Christensen said, no, Steve has to do them. Then Scott said, well, I don't want one then. 
Dr. Christensen shrugged, turned to Steve and asked, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Scott can have a donut he doesn't want? With perfect obedience, Steve started to do 10 push-ups. Scott then said, hey, 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 I said I didn't want one. Dr. Christensen said, look, this is my classroom, my class, my desks, and these are my donuts. Just leave it on the desk if you don't want it. And he put a donut on Scott's desk. Now, by this time, Steve had begun to slow down a little. He just stayed on the floor between sets because it took too much effort to be getting up and down. You could start to see a little perspiration coming out around his brow. Dr. Christensen started down the third row. Now the students were beginning to get a little uncomfortable. Dr. Christensen asked Jenny, Jenny, do you want a donut? Sternly, Jenny said, no. Then Dr. Christensen asked Steve, Steve, would you do 10 more push-ups so Jenny can have a donut that she doesn't want? Steve did 10, and Jenny got a donut. By now, a growing sense of uneasiness filled the room. The students were beginning to say no, and there were all these uneaten donuts on the desk. Steve also had to really put forth a lot of extra effort to get those push-ups done for each donut. There began to be a small pool of sweat on the floor beneath his face. His arms, his brow were beginning to get red because of the physical effort involved. Dr. Christensen started down the fourth row. During his class, however, some students from the other classes had wandered in and sat down on the steps along the radiators that ran down the sides of the room. When the professor realized this, he did a quick count and saw that now there were 34 students in the room. He started to worry if Steve would be able to make it. Dr. Christensen went on to the next person, and the next, and the next, and the next. Near the end of that row, Steve was really having a rough time. He was taking a lot more time to complete each set. A few moments later, Jason, a recent transfer student, came to the room and was about to to come in when all the students yelled their voice in one, no, don't come in, stay out. Jason didn't know what was going on. Steve picked his head up and said, no, let him come. Professor Christensen said, you realize that if Jason comes in, you will have to do 10 push-ups for him. Steve said, yes, let him come in, give him a donut. Dr. Christensen said, okay, Steve, I'll let you get Jason's out of the way right now. Jason, do you want a donut? Jason, new to the room, hardly knew what was going on. Yes, he said. Give me a donut. Steve, will you do 10 push-ups so that Jason can have a donut? Steve did 10 push-ups very slowly and with great effort. Jason, bewildered, was handed a donut and sat down. Dr. Christensen finished the fourth row and then started on those visitors seated by the tables. Steve's arms were now shaking with each push-up in a struggle to lift himself against the force of gravity. Sweat was profusely dropping off of his face, and by this time, there was no sound except his heavy breathing. There was not a dry eye in the room. The very last two students in the room were two young women, both cheerleaders and very popular. Dr. Tr- Christensen went to Linda the second to last, and asked, Linda, do you want a donut? Linda said, very sadly, no thanks. 
Professor Christensen quietly asked Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Linda can have a donut that she doesn't want? Grunting from the effort, Steve did 10 very slow push-ups for Linda. Then Dr. Christensen turned to the last girl, Susan. Susan, do you want a donut? Susan, with tears welling down her face, began to cry. Dr. Christensen, why can't I help you? Dr. Christensen, with tears of his own, said, no, Steve has to do it alone. I have given him a task, and he is in charge of seeing that everyone has an opportunity for a donut, whether they want it or not. When I decided to have a party, this last day of class, I looked at my grade book. Steve is the only student with a perfect grade. Everyone else has failed a test, skipped class, or offered me inferior work. Steve told me that when a player messes up in football practice, he must do push-ups. I told Steve that none of you could come to my party unless he paid the price by doing the push-ups. And I made a deal. He and I made a deal for your sake. Steve, would you do 10 push-ups? So Susan can have a donut. As Steve very slowly finished his last push-up, with the understanding that he had accomplished all that was required of him, having done 350 push-ups, his arm buckled beneath him and he fell to the floor. Dr. Christensen turned to the room and said, and so it was that our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross pled to the Father, into your hands I commit understanding that he had done everything that was required of him. He yielded up his life. And like some of those in this room, many of us leave the gift of life unused. Two students helped Steve up off the floor into a seat, physically exhausted, but wearing a faint smile. Well done, good and faithful servant, said the professor adding, not all sermons are preached. Turning to his class, the professor said, my wish is that you might understand and fully comprehend all the riches of grace and mercy that have been given to you through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for us all, now and forever. I end with this by stating that many people will stand in church buildings Many people will build massive buildings, have their names plastered on the biggest of facilities, fill venues and venues and venues with the attraction of their name for what they call is a good cause, but that donut will not be there. Just the fact that they were in the room was good enough for them, but they did not taste and see the not experience a true relationship with the good shepherd. It became about the things they could build more than the things and the people that they could attract. The relationships that were lost because of an elevation of
we take Jesus' word seriously. And so will we take the lives that we live as the dwelling place of the almighty God. The words that come from our lips, the thoughts that cross our minds, the actions that come from this tongue, do they glorify and magnify the King of kings in pure relationship with him? Or do we continuously find satisfaction in this gathering in a place on a Sunday morning? I, for one, cannot. I will not be satisfied by just coming here on Sunday. If this is all I live for, then I'm sadly mistaken. should be an enriching experience to be with people who are the dwelling place of the Lord Almighty. That as we gather with one another, we can, we, can, we can take correction because we know that it's for the glory of God. We can encourage one another because it's for the glory of God. We can celebrate with one another because it is for the glory of God. appreciate the gifts of the Spirit, but it's for the glory of God, for the impact of those who are in the community. If we forsake the people, then we've forsaken the Lord. Let us not forsake him. Oh 